Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Owasso, Oklahoma. Our passion is to show that grace changes everything in Jesus Christ by equipping you to rest in worship, grow in community, and rediscover your calling. To join our body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at trinityowasso.com. Okay, brothers and sisters, if you have a Bible, would you please grab it and turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 8. One year into our Rise Capital Campaign, we're going to take a break from 1 Corinthians, and I want to direct your attention to 1 Kings chapter 8 and learn from the Bible what the Lord teaches us is the most important aspect of any building campaign or any building used for worship. And it is not the stained glass, it is not the smoke and lights, it is not the instruments. The most important thing in any building is what we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. You may remember that the Lord gave King David instructions for how to build the temple in 1 Chronicles chapter 28. A generation before the temple was actually built, Solomon was the one who was able to build the temple. It took him seven years to build it. You think, well, that's a long period of time. Well, the Sagrada Familia in Madrid was, was started in the 1880s, and they're still building it. Or uh, Westminster Abbey, it took 240 years to build Westminster Abbey, or 270 years to build Westminster Abbey in London. It took Notre Dame 180 years to build it. We have the privilege of building a church building, and it's only taking us, what is this, 11 years and then 10 months of construction, right? So we are in good company. The temple was not primarily the gathering place of the community of Israel. It was primarily the place where the presence and the power of Israel's God, namely the Lord himself, would dwell and minister among his people. So if you're willing and able, let's stand together as I read from 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Kings chapter 8. And when I read this passage, I want you to hear four themes. First theme is gather. The second theme is presence, signified by this funny little word called the ark. The third theme is covenant. And the fourth theme is worship. See if you can hear those themes interwoven in this passage. 1 Kings chapter 8. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes and the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim, 
For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary. But they could not be seen from the outside. And they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, would you open our hearts to see this beautiful passage with these themes of being gathered in your presence and covenant and worship all tightly woven through it. And Lord, would you show us the beauty of the presence of your power and worship with your covenant people and change us by it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Bible students, if you have a highlighter and you were to read this passage for the first time, what are the words that stand out to you? Kiddos, if you have a highlighter, you're welcome to look through the bulletin and highlight the word. I see that gauged along. Highlight the word ark every time you see ark. How many times do you count the word ark? One, two, three, four, five, six. I count eight times. Do you find more? Highlight all the words that talk about worship. Feast, holy vessels, tent, sacrifices, inner sanctuary, most holy place, cherubim, what are those? Poles, the holy place, sanctuary, outside, the priests, minister, cloud, glory. Listen, it's just interlaced. What about covenant of the Lord? Do you see that word in there? And then what about the word assembled or gathered? Do you see that word there also? Here in this context in 1 Kings chapter 8, we have a point in time in which Solomon is bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the temple, and he gathers all the people of Israel there. He gathers them there, and he gathers first, it says, the elders of Israel together. What does that mean? The elders were the spiritual and they were the political rulers of ancient Israel. There's a story of, of Saul whenever, uh, whenever Saul falls from grace and Samuel rebukes Saul. Saul says, may I go before the elders and ask forgiveness? May I go before the elders and have favor in their sight? Why? Because Israel was never set up to be a totalitarian monarchy. Israel, ancient Israel, was always given elders alongside the king to diffuse the centralization of power. And so the elders were the spiritual, they were the, they were the political leaders that helped give wisdom to the king. And the elders spiritually represented God before the people when they gathered to communicate God's word to the people. The, the elders are the ones who led Israel through the trauma of the exodus and they remained crucial and important for their spiritual growth all throughout their time in the wilderness and even into the land. Uh, the elders were together 
with the priests to read the law of the Lord every seven years at the Feast of Booths, which is where they are, it says, in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. This is the Feast of Booths for ancient Israel, the time when they gather to celebrate their journey of God's provision through the wilderness and God's provision for them in the wilderness. And every seven years, the elders would stand with the priest and they would read the whole of the law to the people to remind them of it. The elders would read God's word to them. The elders complimented the priests in serving the people and retelling the story of God's deliverance. And a generation before this, David, just like his son Solomon, called the elders together when he brought the ark into Jerusalem in 1 Chronicles chapter 15. And here we have a new generation of elders who Solomon has called and said, come and assemble. Come to Jerusalem. We're all going to be there. And not only the elders, who were the spiritual and political people of Israel, but he also gathered, who he says, he gathered the heads of the 12 tribes. Remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? Jacob had 12 sons, and those 12 sons became the heads of tribes of ancient Israel. And so the heads of the tribes were probably the oldest member of that tribe. They gathered, they came from Israel. They came from all over Israel into the city of Jerusalem to represent the people there. And it says in the heads of the families. And so you have all of Israel symbolized in the gathering in the temp- at the temple for the bringing in of what he says next, God's presence, which is symbolized in this funny little word called the ark. How many arks are there in the Bible? Bible scholars? There are three arks in the Bible. There's Noah's ark. There is, same word is used of the ark of bulrushes that Moses was put in. He was put in a little ark when he went into the Nile River. And then there is the ark of the covenant. You remember um, in, in, uh, when Moses received the Ten Commandments, you know, the, the first time he received the Ten Commandments, God etched the Ten Commandments and the law into two tablets of stone, right? And do you remember what happened to those two tablets of stone when Moses came down the mountain in Exodus 32? What is Israel doing? They were worshiping the golden calf. And he was so ticked off that Moses, it says Moses threw the stone tablets down and he broke the Ten Commandments. I mean, oops. And God in his grace gave him another set. And so Moses has the second set of the Ten Commandments and God said in Deuteronomy chapter 10, okay, okay, it was good that you got mad about that, but don't break my stuff. Make a box out of acacia wood and put the Ten Commandments in, the, in this box because butterfingers don't drop these. And that is going to be the symbol of my presence among his people. And so he called this amazing craftsman, Bezalel, to make the ark. And he built this ark out of acacia wood. It was just a little, it was just a little box. And he put the Ten Commandments in there. Also, pieces of manna went in there, and Aaron's staff that had budded also went in there. But at this period of Israel's history, this box, they they must have taken out the manna and Aaron's staff in an earlier time. It just has the tablets of stone that's in it. And the Ark of the Covenant of God, this little box, represented God's covenant faithfulness to his people. 
It wasn't just, it wasn't just um, you know, a little, a little token, and it wasn't just something um, that Indiana Jones goes after, right, in, in his movie. The ark was the presence of God among his people, which is why the Philistines, when they came to attack Israel, what did they go after? They took the ark. And remember, the, the, Israel, the, the Philistines take the ark. And when they take the ark, they, all these curses come upon the people of Israel because they have the presence of God that they don't worship in their midst. And he curses the Philistines and they give it back. And the point is that Solomon has gathered all these people because God's presence is about to enter the temple. And his presence was symbolized in God's covenant faithfulness, symbolized in the Ark of the Covenant, which takes us to the third word that you see in this text. The word is covenant. God made a promise. Children, how many times do you see the word covenant in this text? Take your highlighter and look. I see it once in verse 1. I see it again down in verse 9. And you can say any reference to the two tablets of stone is also a reference to that covenant. What's a covenant? It's a fancy adult word that just means an agreement sealed with blood. When your mom and dad kids uh, bought the house or rented the house or the apartment that you live in, they signed the document with ink. But in the ancient world, when you made a covenant, you actually signed documents with blood. And it was a symbol that we are going to take an animal and we're going to kill it and we're going to separate the two halves of the animal and the parties of the covenant will walk through together. As if to say, if either of us do not keep our end of the bargain, just as this animal has been cut in two, so also we shall be, if we don't keep our, up our end of the bargain. And God made a covenant with Israel. And it started with the agreement he made with Father Abraham. And when he made an agreement with Father Abraham, <laughs> he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you have descendants that are greater than the sands of the seashore and the stars in the sky. Which was astonishing to a man who was so old he couldn't have children, he didn't think. Married to a woman who was so old she couldn't bear children anymore. But he gave them a child named Isaac, the child of promise. But when he made that promise to Abraham, remember, they cut an animal, they separated the animal in two, and and. As Abraham was going to walk through that animal with God, what happened? God called Abraham into a deep sleep. And Abraham was totally passive. He was asleep. And God walked through the flaming torch in a smoking fire pot, symbolized God's presence. And he walked through those, those animals as if to say, I will be faithful to my namesake. I pledge on my name that I will accomplish this for you, Abraham. Do you believe it? And later he did the same thing with Moses. He made another covenant with Moses and said, Moses, you're my distinct people. I'm going to make you distinct by giving you funny laws and a funny diet and make you wear funny clothing and have distinct lives and worship one God in a world where they worship many gods because I am the one true God and I love you because I love you and I've set my name upon you. And so God makes covenants with his people. And all of these covenants, kiddos, Adults are fulfilled in Jesus, who was the true Lamb of God, who was killed for us, 
whose blood actually did sign and seal our own covenant of grace, who was holy in every way, fulfilled the law in every way, and died a sinless, perfect human being. He fulfilled the covenant of God. And so this covenant of the Lord, this language of covenant in this passage, is asking the people of Israel, do you renew your faith in the covenant that I have made with you. The covenants that God gave to his people were to be believed by faith. And what is faith, ladies and gentlemen? What is faith? I mean, the days, it's like, well, this truth is true for me and that truth is true for you. But what is, what is faith really? According to Hebrews 11.1, 1, we might say that faith is the ability to see the future as God has promised and accept it as certain. To see the future that God has promised and to accept it as certain. That is faith. And so when Israel were to, was to hear that the Lord will fill his presence in the temple, and out of worship of the temple, the fame and the glory and the power of God's name would change all, not only all of Israel, but eventually all the world through Israel. Israel accepted that future that God had promised. They saw that future, and they accepted it as absolutely certain. That was faith. And guess what? That's also faith for you. Because I know that a lot of you put faith in your 401k and, 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 and I, pro I do not look at it this week. Right? You accept your... That's not certain. Kidding me? That's not certain. What is certain in your life? And God's Word tells us the promises that He has made... We are to see the promises that God has made for the future and to accept it today, now, as certain. That's faith. And so what does that have to do with the capital campaign? Well, it means that we see that any building, the building is just the building. Just the building. Go out there, you can look at the dirt being moved. But what makes this unique for the people of God was not the temple, as beautiful as it was. It was the presence of God's people. Coming into the presence of God's power in worship. Symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant. Coming in to symbolize His power and His presence. What makes a church unique? It is the presence and the power of God to change people by His promises. That's what makes the church unique. And notice that in ancient Israel, Solomon gathered them there for this important occasion. Which should teach us something about the importance of gathered worship. Like, worship is to be a gathered experience. It is to be lived out. There are aspects that you are able to experience right now through the shuffling of feet and the giggles of children and cries and through seeing backs of heads that is utterly different than if you were to just do this online or you were to do this in the metaverse. Gathered worship is meant to be physical, and for ancient Israel, it was gritty, and worship for them as they sacrificed animals in obedience to God's command was often smelly. 
bloody, dirty. It was real. And we don't have to sacrifice animals anymore because our great paschal lamb has been sacrificed for us. But oh, the church is still gritty and dirty and sometimes smelly and often bloody. Why? Because you're in it. And there are relationships in this church that are beautiful and they're messy. We don't sacrifice animals anymore, but you know what we do? We still get our hands dirty in each other's lives. And we can do that because we have been made clean by the spotless righteousness of Jesus who gives us a righteousness that we don't deserve. And so we don't compare ourselves to each other. We encourage each other to use their gifts in light of how God has uniquely created each person in this room. We don't compare ourselves to each other. We just love each other at our best. Because that's what makes the church essentially unique. The relationships in that church, in the presence of God, changed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, when, when the New Testament writers are trying to think about how do we take our relationship and our, our responsibility as Israel now to the world, they, they, over a hundred times, they use this Greek word all alone. It sounds like all alone. It's interesting. But it actually means, in Greek, it means one another. And a hundred times they use this word, to one another, one another. You should gather together. When you gather one to another, you should confess your sins to one another. You should encourage one another. You should love one another. Why? Because that is what makes the church so unique and powerful. When we all can one another, one another, in light of the gospel of grace and encourage each other in that way. And this building and all the stuff about the campaign is just to give us the ability to do that in a much more effective way that allows us to focus on those most important aspects of one anothering each other. Covenant community is like air. We don't miss it until we need it. It's only in community that we can truly feel cared for. Technology is good, but it does have its limits. Uh, there is a, there's a, a woman named um, uh, Malloy Owen. She's a doctoral student in political science at Stanford, and she just wrote a book on the metaverse called Between Utopia and Disaster. And she says that within the metaverse, for those of you who don't know what the metaverse is, ask, ask your kids. They'll explain it to you. The, the meta, in the metaverse, the designers will be omniscient see not only the user's words and actions, but perhaps even the thoughts of their hearts. They will also be omnipotent, able to raise up and tear down instantly and to change even the laws governing the motion of bodies. One question is whether they will aspire to be omnibenevolent as well, all good as well, because more and more people are investing time. One of you, you know, who's in real estate told me that that your company has already trained you in how to purchase real estate in the metaverse so that y'all can begin to, to do that, right? I mean, this is, this is where we're going. And it, it disembodies the lived and gathered experience. And I just want the church, technology is great, but nothing can replace this. It's gritty and it's messy. And if you come to church and you expect it to be clean, you've come to the wrong place because it's not. You know why? Because you're in the room for crying out loud. And I'm in the room. 
And so in 1 Kings chapter 8, you see them bring this Ark of the Covenant as a symbol of God's presence and power. And that is what makes the church distinct and unique. It's not the temple. The focus is on the presence of God. And that also should be the focus of where we are in the midst of our RISE campaign. It's about enabling us to better use our gifts and to demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit through the unique channels and gifts, and yes, also offer our building 24 hours a day to those nonprofits who need to use it. That would be amazing, which means that we're going to have to have administrative help from some of you to help us know how to organize all that, but it would be fantastic to do it, and we want to. When Chuck and Lori read uh, the passage earlier, they read in John 1.14 that it was Jesus Christ who became flesh and he dwelt, he tabernacled among us. And the word tabernacle there is the same word in the Old Testament that's used at the temple. Jesus came and templed among us. In the New Covenant, friends, it is not the temple of God where God's presence dwells. It is not the building where God's presence dwells. It is his people. And we must keep the main thing the main thing, that God's presence is here by the power of his Holy Spirit who indwells each of you. And the building is only a fruit of that covenant community. It is not the focus of it. It is a tool to be used to promote that because Jesus came, tabernacled among us, the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament talked about so that he might free us up to go and to be his witnesses in the world shown through the messiness of our life, of sacrificing for each other, of knowing each other's stories, of investing into community groups, of going deeper than just discussion, of chips and dip and small talk, and to know each other. And that takes work. Are you saved by hard work? Yes or no? Yes. Jesus is hard work. That's a trick question. It wasn't fair. Jesus accomplished the work for you. You're not saved by your works. Jesus is the one who did it for you. And so this morning, all of you who feel heavy laden and burdened, would you see your Savior who took upon himself your burden? He was saved by his good work and obedience to all that the Lord asked of him. He even asked that the cup would be taken from him, and his father said, no. And Jesus said, well, your will be done, not mine. And so as people who are saved by the works of the Lord Jesus Christ, not by our works, we receive a righteousness, we receive a record of perfection that Jesus gives to us by grace. Would you allow yourself to receive that good news? Would you lay down your indefatigable struggle to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and to say, yes, as I come to the table today, I'm again receiving the good news that I don't have a righteousness to bring. It is not in the materials that I have. It is not in the money that I spend. It is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, most of the ways that you um, spend your money or that you lead your life, um, if you're not careful then that begins to become your master. And when you come to the Lord's table, you say, Lord, nothing in my hands I bring, and simply to the cross I cling. I come naked, coming to you for dress. 
I come helpless, and I look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the mountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Trinity, please visit our website at trinityowasso.com.